Welcome to Cato Audio for February 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Tucker Carlson and Ed Crane look at the tension between Republicans and the more libertarian Tea Partiers. Chris Edwards evaluates budget cutting in the new Congress, and Edward Gresser offers a progressive case against some trade restrictions. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. The elections of 2010 brought a new group to Washington. These are Tea Partiers. And uh, they brought with them a concern for debt spending, but also a renewed interest in the U.S. Constitution. We're going to talk about what that might mean. I'm talking with Roger Pilon, Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Cato Institute, and David Bowes, Executive Vice President at the Cato Institute. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Tom Palmer, a senior fellow at Cato, likes to uh, tell a story about a parlor trick that he likes to do, which is when he is talking with people about the Constitution and, and or talk about some issue of public policy. He likes to pull out his copy of the Cato Constitution and say, could you just point me to the part of the Constitution where the government has that specific authority? And he says that this usually can shut down a conversation or at least uh, make things a little uncomfortable for the, the person who imagines perhaps the Constitution isn't quite so important as uh, he and you and I believe that it is. David Bose, what does this change do you think mean for Washington, D.C. and the importance of the Constitution in actual legislation? Well, that certainly remains to be seen. It's not clear how many Americans have any renewed appreciation for the Constitution. On the other hand, a significant and vocal and active group of people have demonstrated an interest. We found that at Cato because the sales of our pocket Constitution doubled during 2010 and appeared to be accelerating at the end of the year. So we know there are a lot of people out there who are interested It was enough to make the Republicans read the Constitution on the floor of the House of Representatives. That's a significant thing. Will it actually make any difference? Will they actually understand what the Constitution says and ask where is the authority and then say, oh, there is no authority? That still remains to be seen. I'm hopeful, but I'm certainly cautiously hopeful. Roger Pilon? Let me pick up on this point that David raised, will it make a difference? The first step toward making a difference is getting the discussion going. And that's what, for some of us, was the most exciting thing about the advent of the Tea Party movement. For the first time in my lifetime, certainly, we have a grassroots movement that is apparently deep and wide and arose spontaneously that is asking three things. If you'll think back to those signs that we saw during the run-up to the 2010 elections, give us back our country, give us back our Constitution, and perhaps most important of all, we want less. Most populist movements have been urging government to give them more in the way of goods and services. This seems to be, at least at this stage, a movement that recognizes the dire consequences of that kind of request. We want more. The consequences are deficits that seem to be 
unable to be closed at the state level, certainly, when you look at states like California, Illinois, and New York, and debt, as far as the eye can see, for our children and our grandchildren to pick up. This is what the Tea Party people are recognizing, and they put it in constitutional terms. They are saying, where is the authority for all this government? To pick up on the point that you started with, that Tom Palmer says, where in the Constitution do you find this authority? You look at Article 1, Section 8, which is where you'll find the main powers that were authorized to Congress. And there are only 18. Indeed, James Madison in Federalist 45 said that the powers of the new government would be few and defined. No one believes that Washington's powers today are few and defined. So we have a fundamental gap between the Constitution, modern constitutional law, and the government that we have today. And that's what the Tea Party people have recognized, and that's why this movement has so much potential. But again, it will not be a movement that accomplishes its ends overnight. It probably won't be in our lifetime, but it will get the debate going, and that's the start. One of the specific things that the U.S. House has done was to require that new legislation have embedded in it somewhere a requirement that the specific constitutional authority be cited. Now, that it seems to be uh, largely symbolic, but when I talked about this with uh, Ilya Shapiro at the Cato Institute, he suggested, well, look, this is important if for no other reason you're requiring members of Congress to establish a track record about what they actually believe to be constitutional. Yes. In fact, the Supreme Court decided a case in 1995 relating to the Gun-Free School Zones Act that Congress had passed. And for the first time in the last 58 years, the court found that Congress had no authority under its power to regulate interstate commerce to enact such a statute. That sent shockwaves through official Washington. But the striking thing about it was that in enacting that statute, Congress hadn't even bothered to cite its authority. It was only when they got to the Supreme Court that the Solicitor General, arguing on behalf of the U.S. government, bootstrapped himself into the argument by saying, well, what they meant to cite was the Commerce Clause. And so what we have in this new requirement is the possibility of taking the Constitution seriously. However, there is the problem that it could be simply treated as check the box, commerce clause, general welfare clause, necessary and proper clause. We hope that it will be more than that. However, there are complicated issues here, which in the course of this discussion, I'd like to get into. David Bowes. The problem is virtually everything the federal government is currently doing is not authorized in the Constitution. And a bill to tinker with or amend something the federal government's doing doesn't really have any constitutional authority because the underlying policy is not authorized in the Constitution. And that is 
too radical a point for virtually any member of Congress to be comfortable making. So I do worry that this requirement that they cite the specific authority is going to lead to a bipartisan affirmation that the general welfare clause authorizes everything they do, because what else can they do? When they introduce the bill to revise or reform the No Child Left Behind Act, they're going to have to cite something, and they're going to say general welfare, right? So then you will have both parties on record as saying, well, everything we do is authorized under the General Welfare Act. In the long run, will that have been an advance? That's exactly the point that I was alluding to a moment ago. The first thing that we need to recognize is that this requirement if it is taken seriously, will preclude Congress from introducing any new bills or programs, programs like Obamacare, for example. Nevertheless, you've still got a vast array of programs that, under a proper reading of the Constitution, were unconstitutional right from the start, and yet they are out there. Take Social Security, for example. There is no authority under the Constitution for Congress to enact a retirement scheme like Social Security. Nevertheless, it's been in place for all these years. We've got people who have depended upon it and will depend upon it for the rest of their lives. And so the question arises, if we're going to move back toward a more limited government that is more consistent with the limits that the Constitution imposes, how do we get from here to there? That means that in addition to not instituting any new programs, we have got to have bills that provide, for example, that people under the age of 40 will henceforth be included in a private 401k type of program, an individual savings account kind of program, to get us gradually out of Social Security while protecting the expectations of those who've been in the system for a long time. Under what provision of the Constitution will that bridge proposal be enacted? There we're going to have to recognize that this itself is beyond the authority of the Constitution, but it is necessary and proper to move us back toward a more constitutional regime. Now, one story that Ed Crane likes to tell is uh, this constitutional caucus that emerged after Republicans took over the House in 1995, constitutional caucus, and suddenly a piece of legislation comes up that uh, involves the federal government in uh, police power regarding church burnings, which of course is illegal everywhere. The Constitutional Caucus by and large voted for it and even though it's clearly unconstitutional. It's hard to see how pieces of popular legislation in a lot of ways constrained. That of course is the great problem, namely the incentive for political reasons to vote in favor of popular legislation even though that legislation may be unconstitutional. In this case, it was the Church Burning Act, and obviously no one is in favor of church burning, but it takes some political fortitude to vote against such a measure on constitutional grounds. One hopes that we may be getting toward and maybe are even at a position in which people in Congress will feel that they can make such statements because this, is too, is part of the constitutional debate that we need to revive. That debate was alive and well all during the 19th century. We have example after example that we can cite 
whereby people stood on the floor of the House or the Senate and said, this bill may be proposed in virtue of a worthy goal, but we don't have authority to enact it. We could reach in our own pockets to provide for this suffering person or these people, but we cannot reach into the public fisc to do so. That was a constitutional argument, an argument based on constitutional principle. We don't hear that much anymore. We need to get back to that if we're going to maintain ourselves as a constitutional republic. Well, and this is where we need engaged citizens to be involved. The Tea Party did a lot of activism leading up to the election. One of the problems is that after the election, special interests never take a break. In fact, they rev up after the election. Two days after the election, they're calling newly elected members of Congress offering to hold fundraisers for them. The people, the Tea Party, the engaged citizenry have to match the special interests that way. And one of the things is to keep reminding people you were sent there to cut the budget, you were sent there to cut the national debt. And another is to remind them you were sent there to act constitutionally. And so people have to keep writing letters to their congressmen, letters to their local newspaper, showing up at town hall meetings, if they have any town hall meetings, holding up their pocket constitutions and saying, I don't understand where the authority for this new program comes. And that's a real challenge because normal people have lives. They don't spend their day thinking about how to influence congressmen. Whereas in Washington, there are thousands of people who do spend all day, every day, thinking about how to get something from Congress. Absolutely. You've put your finger on a crucial point, David, namely the Tea Party's work has just begun. Electing these new members of Congress is only the first step. Now the real hard work begins, the day in, day out, slogging, watching what's going on in Congress, reading the bills that are being proposed, keeping their feet to the fire, and bringing to their attention every day that they are there to serve us, not the other way around, and their authority is rooted at the end of the day in the Constitution and in the oath of office they take to uphold the Constitution. There's a popular Onion article that I recall here, and this relates to the issue of uh, Americans having lives that they would like to uh, pursue and not concern themselves exclusively with politics. From the Onion, man vigorously supports what he imagines the Constitution to say. That is, perhaps uh, a lot of Americans don't necessarily know what's in the Constitution, and uh, so there's an issue of education there. But I mean, rationally, a lot of people don't... uh, Again, they want to pursue their own lives. They don't want to concern themselves so much with a lot of uh, constitutional minutiae. What role does that play? This is absolutely crucial that the Tea Party people continue doing what they have already begun. They have, over the past two years, held local educational sessions in their own homes in which they've studied the Constitution and brought readings about the Constitution to the fore so that they can learn more about it. There is a tremendous amount of misunderstanding and miseducation about the Constitution coming from our public schools, not surprisingly. So there's a lot of work there to be done. And of course, we have also the problem of the people on the other side who think that the modern body of constitutional law is perfectly all right 
in authorizing all the government that we have today, the living constitution folks. These are the people who stem from the New Deal constitutional revolution, which in fact turned the constitution on its head from a document designed to secure limited government to a document that enabled the expansive regulatory redistributive state that so many of them know and love so well today. So we have a battle on our hands to correct the miseducation that has come, especially from our public schools and our universities, and in particular from our law schools, where modern constitutional law is taught and where it is argued that the founders gave us a document that is so flexible that literally we can go from limited government to unlimited government. If that were the case, that constitution would never have been ratified. One thing that troubled me during the uh, election of 2010 that made me think, well, perhaps the Tea Party movement it will be absorbed by the mainstream of the Republican Party was the argument that a lot of Republicans were making regarding Obamacare. It was not this is unconstitutional. It was the fear that Medicare would actually be cut, another program that is not itself constitutional. Well, that reflects two things, I guess, pandering and ignorance. There are people who have sort of forgotten that Medicare wasn't authorized by the Constitution, is unsustainable economically and everything. And there are, I guess, people in the Tea Party who think that Medicare is theirs and the government should stay out of it. I do believe that was one sign at one town hall that people have focused on. But for the Republicans, it has been an opportunity to pander, to tell people this bill will change your Medicare even though they understand perfectly well Medicare has got to change. It is economically unsustainable. So, yes, it was political pandering, and it did dig them into a deeper hole. It makes it more difficult to deal with the problems of Medicare in the future, and that's the nature of politics. In fact, uh, this issue is perfectly generalizable because whether you're talking about Medicare or Social Security or any of the other massive transfer programs that we've got in this country, you create a constituency and there is a, a almost ineluctable uh, race to the bottom as you're transferring from those who have to those who have not. And the problem is that you can't do this uh, continually. Eventually, you get to the point where you have to stop transferring and start borrowing. And that's the point we're at today. And that's why we have the deficits year in and year out and the debt, which increases exponentially over the next few years. This is what the Tea Party people are recognizing. And the problem is that sooner or later, you're going to have to bite the bullet. We're seeing this at the state level with regard to the public pension plans and, of course, with respect to these transfer programs, we're seeing it at the federal level. So you either take your medicine now or you're going to have to take some very serious medicine in a few years. That's what we have to come to grips with. That's what uh, responsible citizens are recognizing and one hopes that uh, we will do it before the uh, pain of correction gets too great. One thing I have found very promising is just how terrified a lot of the GOP has been by the Tea Party movement itself. They've taken several symbolic actions that uh, 
as of now haven't necessarily translated into anything substantive. So I guess to find out where the rubber meets the road here, we have to discover something that the GOP does like that the Tea Party really, really doesn't like. And uh, it seems like that would make clear or how that battle shakes out might make clear who's winning in that war. Well, the Republican Party is an interesting uh, institution. Years ago, back in the um, 70s, it was essentially the Democratic Party light. And the idea was to get along, you need to go along. And so you really didn't have a serious choice when you went into the voting booth between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. That has changed to some extent. It certainly changed to a certain extent under the Reagan administration. The two Bushes, unfortunately, reversed course, but you still had a number of people within the Republican Party who understood the difference between the two parties, or at least what the difference between the two parties should be, even if they weren't able to execute it in practice. And so the question before us at this moment is, is this new Democratic Party that has been brought into being by the Tea Party folks serious, or is it going to fall into the pattern that we have seen among Republicans too often over the last 30 to 40 years? We need two parties in this country, to be sure, but we need them to be different and to stand for different things, and not simply to stand for them, but to actually carry them out. We shall see. What was the reaction to members of Congress reading the Constitution aloud, and what, what does that tell us about what things are going to look like for the next couple of years in Washington? Well, I was struck by the negative, hostile, mocking reaction by so many parts of the Democratic Party and the media. The Congress of the United States read the Constitution on the floor of Congress. You might think, oh, what's the point? Why don't we get on with our work? But the reaction was to refer to it as a cult, cult worship, sacred document, mockery, all this negative reaction to the very idea of reading the Constitution and then making a big issue of the fact that they read the Constitution as it currently exists, not the historical document, which included a number of things that are no longer part of the Constitution, ranging from the three-fifths compromise to prohibition to the rules for when the president takes office. It seemed perfectly reasonable to me for the Republicans to read the document that is the law of the land, the one that binds them now. I wouldn't have objected if they had done a history seminar by reading the entire Constitution, including all the parts that are no longer active. But the hysteria that was directed at them for not reading all the parts that are no longer law, the relevance for Congress is... This is the law that we are required to obey, and that doesn't include the Prohibition Amendment. It doesn't include the three-fifths rule. It only includes the parts of the Constitution that have not been amended. And then there was an attempt to confuse the issue between, well, so apparently you don't believe in the original Constitution. So 
who's criticizing the fact that it's been changed. They tried to elide the distinction between following the amendment process and changing it through the rules and simply ignoring it or bending it or pretending that it doesn't exist when it blocks you from doing something that you want to do. So I was really struck at how hostile the reaction from the liberal media and liberal Democrats was. And I, too, was struck by how the liberal pundits and the Democrats in the uh, House ridiculed the idea of reading the Constitution. It is just extraordinary to see that kind of performance. And there are two issues here. David points to the fact that the Constitution as it exists today was read, not the other parts. Well, there's a good part of the opposition that wants, indeed, gets some great pleasure out of rubbing our noses in the sins of the past. Call it American unexceptionalism, if you will. But let's remember, when they point to such things, well, women didn't have the vote. The extraordinary thing in 1787 was that so many men had the vote. After all, democracy was hardly to be found around the world at that point in time. We were doing this brave new experiment in democracy to be sure it was a limited franchise, but it was far more extensive than you would find in virtually any other part of the world at that time. The second point is this. In mocking the reading of the Constitution, what the Democrats and the pundits on the other side were pointing to was the idea that the Republicans think that they own the Constitution. And that brings us to the two fundamentally opposing conceptions of the Constitution. To be sure, those who read it stand for the idea that the Constitution stands for limited government. And that, of course, is what is anathema to the critics on the other side because they are the party of government. They live their lives for and in and through government. And the idea of a limited government is tantamount to a government in which they have a far more limited role. And that is why the crying on the other side, it seems to me, was so loud. They don't like this conception of the government. They like the conception that we've got today of virtually unlimited constitutional government. That's their conception of the government, that it's at variance with the founders and with generations thereafter is simply ignored by them. They think the Constitution was created in effect in 1937 and 1938. Roger, as you point out, 1937 and 1938 represented some pretty dramatic changes in how people think about the Constitution. What are the prospects for restoring constitutional government as it uh, ought to be understood? Well, as I said at the outset, this is going to be a long process. These changes don't happen overnight. Let's remember John Locke wrote the Second Treatise of Government in 1690. It was another 80 years before those ideas manifest themselves in the Declaration of Independence. The progressives came up with their ideas for expansive government at the end of the 19th century. It was not until 1937-38 that those ideas were institutionalized through the constitutional revolution that followed from Franklin Roosevelt's threat to pack the court with six new members of his own persuasion. So these ideas will take time to, first of all, become current and to be institutionalized. And we have to be patient with that. 
It's going to take some hard slogging. There is going to be setbacks, but we have to keep the debate going. All right, gentlemen, we'll have to leave it there. Roger Pillon, Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Cato Institute, and David Bose, Executive Vice President at the Cato Institute. You can get your copy of the Cato Constitution, which includes a wonderful introduction by Roger. And uh, no doubt you've uh, you've seen at some point that Constitution being uh, hoisted for cameras by the likes of some Republicans, but many Democrats, including uh, Robert Byrd, Harry Reid, and uh, Dennis Kucinich. You can get your copy of that at Cato.org. For-profit education is under attack. New laws and regulations aim to make for-profit higher education less attractive to students and even subject these schools to special regulations. Richard Beshurgen is president of Yorktown University. He says the Obama administration simply wants government to control higher education just as it controls the bulk of K-12 education in the United States. He spoke at the Cato Institute in November. This administration wants to kill one sector of the higher education system in the United States, that is the for-profit sector. And I, the reason I think that's what they're trying to do is because they're not willing to reform or seeking to reform higher education. What they really want to do is to get away from education where there's a place for institutions that make a profit on education. On October 10th, President Obama touted a new effort to aid community colleges. He did that at uh, Macomb Community College in Michigan, where he called for increasing the number of college graduates by five million in 10 years, largely by supporting two-year institutions. Arne Duncan, the Secretary of Education at American Enterprise Institute on November 17th, in a speech titled, Bang for the Buck in Schooling, made an observation that technology can play a huge role in increasing educational productivity, but not just an add-on for high-tech reproduction of current practice. We need to change the underlying processes to leverage the capabilities of technology. It's a very smart observation because the internet distribution of higher education products, if you want to call it that, or courses, is not parallel to what goes on in the classroom. It is a different modality it uses different instruments, it appeals even to a different market, and its purpose is to achieve a goal that is not the exact equivalent. In my own view, it is better to be in a traditional classroom with a teacher over a period of number of years and the like, if you can afford it. But the internet is an opportunity to offer an equivalent education in a different modality to those who can't afford to go to colleges that cost as much as they do today. Robert Charman gave a speech to the National Association of State Administrators and Supervisors of Private Schools, which told me that the administration really wasn't attempting to reform higher education by correcting the evils of for-profit education, but rather they wanted to destroy it. To these administrators, he said, uh, do you have the analytical firepower you need to assess what is going on with the entities you regulate? The system of academic accreditation is fraught with conflicts of interest, and federal and state governments cannot rely on accreditation to assure that consumers and taxpayers are protected. 
The solution is to utilize a triad of regulation that includes the states, the accrediting associations, and the federal government. Now, prior to October 29th of this year, if we are domiciled in Colorado, which where we are, we only need to receive a license in uh, the state of Colorado. After the Department of Education carried out Charman's dictates, it is now necessary for us to attain a license in every state where we have a student if the state requires that. And the regulations that were posted on October 29 compel the states to get into the accreditation business and to force us to comply with those regulations. We left Virginia near Yorktown because of the regulations in Virginia and moved to Colorado which allows a free market in educational institutions, even startup institutions without accreditation. With this new regulation, we will now be bound to be licensed by the same state that we, from which we fled if we have students in the state of Virginia. And it also applies to religious colleges, subjecting them to the scrutiny of states who may not be supportive of the religious mission of those colleges. So let's put all this together. The Obama administration wants to expand the opportunities of students to attend at least community colleges, but the community colleges are already bulging at the seams. In Colorado last week, the Denver Post observed that last year, Colorado community colleges increased their enrollments by 28%. There is no amount of money that will increase the ability of the community college system as it currently exists to absorb these students. Neil McCluskey observes the high cost of uh, college education today between 1987 and 88. In 2007 and 2008, he said the cost at a four-year public institution rose 78%. Here's a chart from the College of Affordability and Productivity that shows the growth of tuition room and board at public institutions and private institutions. The average cost at a private institution is $33,400, and at a state university, it's $14,000. A good research institution like Penn State or the University of Colorado Boulder charges $22,000 and $23,000. So what we have is a system where the, what we need is for new entities to come in to challenge the system, to take away students from the traditional colleges that aren't doing a good job or are charging too much, and those people who are doing that are the for-profit sector. But the rules and regulations that have been imposed and which are coming down the pike will kill them. Now you have to ask yourself, why are they doing that? And the answer is they want to control higher education. If you want to control civilization, control the educational system. The preferential market access given by the United States to most developing countries through the Generalized System of Preferences, or GSP, yields real benefits for the covered countries and for U.S. consumers and firms importing the goods. But the program is deeply flawed. Edward Gresser with the Democratic Leadership Council made a progressive case against the current system at a Capitol Hill briefing in December. As a general principle, I feel that policies, and tariffs being one of them, should try to treat the poor more gently than they treat the middle class and the wealthy. Our 
trade system does not do that. That is principally because of our tariff policy. Tariff system we inherit from the Hoover administration has been changed substantially over the years, but still, you know, very recognizably looks like the one that was put together in 1930, which had then its highest rates on cheap and simple labor-intensive manufactured goods, and still does. We import last year a little bit less than two trillion dollars worth of goods. On that, we assess a tariff penalty of about twenty billion dollars. If you Look closely at it. About sixty percent of our tariff money comes from a relatively small slice of imports. About five percent of imports raise about sixty percent of all the money. This year, I have the figures is a bit larger, twenty-six billion dollars. Of that twenty-six billion dollars, nine and a half billion will come from clothes. Two billion will come from shoes. One billion will come from luggage. One billion will come from home linens like towels and bed sheets and pillowcases. And then 12 billion from everything else. The 12 billion is assessed on about 1.9 trillion dollars of goods. The 14 billion is assessed on about 100 billion dollars of imports. In practice, this means two things: one, that our tariff system is a fairly small part of the overall tax system. It's about the same size as the estate tax. Estate tax is assessed on wealthy families. Tariff system is mainly assessed on poor families, especially poor families with children. Because most of its money comes from clothes and secondarily shoes and linens and luggage, those are big parts of a poor family's budget. They are small parts of a rich family's budget, and they don't appear in the business purchase budget very much. Moreover, these、um, the way this works is that the tariff system is systematically skewed to tax heavily things that poor people buy and not to tax luxuries that rich people buy. My shirt is Thailand-made. It's a 16% tariff because of cotton. If it were silk, it would be 1%. If it were polyester, it would be 32%. A pair of shoes I'm wearing, you know, nice event. I'm wearing, you know, attractive leather shoes. Those are 8.5% tariff. Expensive pair of Nike sneakers, 20%. Cheap pair of sneakers, 48%. A silk brassiere is 1.9% tariff. Polyester is 16.9%. Spoon. You know, if I had one of those, it was sterling silver, four percent. If it is cheap stainless steel, it's fifteen point eight percent. So, the sort of hidden away in eleven thousand lines of tariff codes, as an extremely regressive tax system that taxes life necessities more heavily than anything else, and taxes cheap things that poor people buy much more heavily than luxuries that rich people buy. Likewise, this has an effect on our trading partners. The case of Pakistan is an interesting one. Pakistan makes bed sheets and towels, makes clothes and so forth. Pakistan exports three point five billion dollars to the U.S. Tariff penalty is about three hundred fifty million. Britain, former colonial power, exports medicine and whiskey and artwork and airplane parts and so forth. Forty-seven billion dollars of goods tariff penalty, two hundred and eighty million dollars. So we have a very kind of unfair and inequitable pattern where a small amount of poor country goods gets a much heavier penalty than a large amount of rich country goods.
The president's fiscal commission has unveiled serious proposals to cut programs, restrain the growth of spending, and reduce the federal government's huge budget deficit. The commission's report provides numerous fiscal policy ideas for the large class of new Republican members who are eager to fix the federal fiscal mess, while the prospects for budget restraint look promising. Chris Edwards, director of tax policy studies at the Cato Institute, addressed some of those ideas at a Capitol Hill briefing in December. Unless spending is cut, the United States is heading down the road to economic ruin. There's broad agreement on that. The American public knows that. And of course, the big message from the last election is, is that people want Washington to end the spending spree. Policymakers should implement an emergency package of across-the-board cuts to domestic programs, defense programs, and entitlement programs. And as Brandon said, I've detailed a lot of the required cuts at our website, downsizinggovernment.org. My balanced budget plan that I looked through the whole budget and I sort of went for the most damaging programs and added it all up and you can balance the budget uh, by 2020 with spending cuts. It's sort of a counter plan to the Obama Fiscal Commission's plan. I've got bigger spending cuts than the Fiscal Commission. Basically, I cut a trillion dollars from the budget by 2020, which is about a 20% reduction in the size of the federal government by that time, 10 years from now, which should be certainly doable. That would bring federal spending down to about 18.5% of GDP by 2020, which compares to Obama's budget, which is up at around 23.5% of GDP in that year. I mean, at minimum, policymakers need to cut enough in order that federal debt is stabilized so that we avoid a Greek-style debt crisis. So we need to cut at least 10% out of the budget by 2020 in order to at least stabilize debt as a share of GDP. 10% out of the budget in order to avert a fiscal crisis seems like a reasonable and modest plan to me. I mean, the basic math is that if you extend all the Bush tax cuts and you extend AMT relief, the economy will recover and federal revenues will rise to about 18.5% of GDP by 2020. So with revenues at 18.5% of GDP by 2020, we need to get the deficit down to about 3% of GDP by 2020 in order to stabilize debt. So 18.5 plus 3 gets you to 21.5% of GDP. That's what we need to get spending down to. Interestingly, President Clinton, the last couple budgets, had spending at about 18% of GDP. So really, what we need to do is extend all these uh, tax cuts, revenues rise to 18.5% of GDP, and get spending down to the level under President Clinton the last few years, and we'd not only balance the budget, we'd start running surpluses. The problem is clearly spending in Washington, spending this year is up at 25% of GDP, far above historic norms, and whether we aim for a balanced budget or just to, uh, to make sure debt doesn't keep exploding, we need to start cutting spending. Now, you know, spending cuts are not just about sort of budget math and deficits. I think federal spending cuts would expand individual freedom, they would free up states from all this top-down micromanagement from Washington, and it would spur economic growth by transferring resources out of the less efficient government sector into the more productive private sector of the economy. 
In recent decades, federal programs expanded into hundreds of areas that used to be traditionally state and local, private uh, business or charitable activities. That is sucking the life out of the private sector in the United States, and it's creating a top-down bureaucratic society like they have in Europe. So I think cutting spending, it's not only good for the economy, it would be good for civil liberties by dispersing power out of Washington. On our website, downsizinggovernment.org, we've got cuts to uh, individual and business subsidies, aid to the state, the military, entitlement programs, and we've got all kinds of suggestions for privatizing federal activities. You know, the federal government now has over 2,000 different subsidy programs. That's a doubling of the number of subsidy programs since just the mid-1980s. So it's not just that the size of the government has grown bigger, it's the scope of the federal government has grown much bigger. As I'm sure all of you know, I mean, the federal government, we subsidize farm businesses, retirees, school lunches, rural utilities, housing, public broadcasting, job training, on and on and on and on. Each subsidy program costs money, creates a bureaucracy, and it spawns all these outside lobby groups. And all these lobby groups, uh, once they're hooked on subsidies, they want more and more and more. So it, the more subsidies we have, the more it spurs people to demand even more of the government. And it seems to me if we hook thousands and thousands of businesses and nonprofit groups on subsidies these days, they essentially become tools of the state, which I think is very dangerous. The more people hooked on subsidies, the more they become tools of the state, which is very dangerous for democracy because they won't stand up against big government when it keeps on expanding because they've essentially been bought off. Now, some analysts, some economists, even Nobel Prize winners, are claiming that spending cuts would hurt the economy. But that idea is based on faulty Keynesian economic theories. In fact, spending cuts would move resources from mismanaged and less efficient government programs to more productive private sector activities, which would increase overall GDP. Let's consider Canada's experiences. Two decades ago, Canada was becoming a basket case. The Wall Street Journal said it was becoming a banana republic. Government deficit spending was exploding, but Canada turned course, and in the mid-90s, they started cutting, and they chopped 10% clean off their budget in just two years, which would be the equivalent in this country of about chopping $400 billion off the budget in just two years. Then they kept spending flat for a number of years, and the result is the Canadian government substantially shrunk as the size of the economy, and despite what Keynesians would think, the Canadian economy did not sink into a recession from those government spending cuts. It boomed, and Canada went into a 15-year-long economic boom as the government was coming down in size. So policymakers shouldn't think of spending cuts as sort of a necessary evil to reduce the debt. As you know, there's a lot of commentary often, you know, talks about these spending cuts as being horrible and painful and bad. They are not. I think the big fiscal mess we've got in Washington today is a real opportunity to make reforms that would spur growth and would expand freedom. Other countries like Britain and Canada have done these sort of big cuts. Uh, Dan uh, Mitchell, who's going to be talking uh, next, often jokes about you know how Europeans are, are kind of wussies and you know uh, they're addicted to their welfare state. The big question, I think, for Dan and for all of us, you know, have we become bigger wussies than the Canadians or the Brits who have managed to cut their government substantially? Well, we're going to find out in coming years.
Will libertarian ideas thrive in this Congress? What are the risks to liberty? Will the United States scale back or end its presence in Afghanistan? Ed Crane, president of the Cato Institute, offered some perspective on the new Congress at a Chicago Cato Institute City Seminar in December. The Cato Institute is a libertarian think tank. We were founded out in uh, San Francisco back in 1977, moved to Washington, D.C. in uh, 1981. We have our own building out there, and we're expanding that building. We support the free market and smaller government. The noted left-wing journalist Ezra Klein, writing in the Washington Post about 10 days ago, said the Cato Institute is Washington's leading proponent or leading advocate of limited government, which is kind of a cool thing. I mean, he wasn't saying it in a flattering way, but (laughs) that's the way I took it. So we believe in market capitalism. We don't believe in crony capitalism or corporate welfare, but we're free marketeers, as are most Americans, I believe. We are socially tolerant. Uh, We don't think it's the government's business what people do on their own if they're not bothering others. And we're very skeptical about the efficacy of the U.S. trying to be the world's policeman. There's a piece in the USA Today in a cover story suggesting that more and more Americans, Republicans and Democrats alike, are questioning the wisdom of our military presence in Afghanistan, and I think that's a very, very healthy development. So that's a combination of views that is not really offered up a lot in the political arena, although I would suggest that a plurality of Americans actually share those views. I'm encouraged by the Tea Party because that movement has, at its core, a respect and a desire for constitutionally limited government. There's not a lot of discussion of social issues, although Sarah Palin keeps trying to drag them into the Tea Party movement. I don't think she's been that successful. And there's not a lot of talk about foreign policy. It is a movement to go back to constitutional first principles and reduce the role of government in our lives. There's a lot of talk about whether we cut taxes in this level or that level. I really think we should listen to Milton Friedman. We should always listen to Milton Friedman. He, he said the true tax on the American people are the resources extracted from the private sector and employed in the public sector. And whether that's done through direct taxation, borrowing, or inflation, which are the three ways government extracts from the private sector and employs in the public sector, doesn't matter so much as the fact that that's happening. And so it's important that somebody starts standing up and talking about what government shouldn't be doing. It's not just a question. You know, the supply side movement had this focus on economic growth, which is okay. Tax cuts do increase economic growth, but it's not what America is about. Politics is about man's relationship to the state, and it's liberty versus power. I think the supply siders inadvertently have taken the eye off of liberty and put economic growth as the goal of people on our side. And I think that's a mistake. Growth happily will come in a free society, but the key is to reduce the size of government, not to grow the economy. And we have, you've seen it out there, a blow up of the ad we ran in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago, and we've run it previously, listing 10 different areas where there are tens of billions of dollars to be cut. And, you know, I see John Boehner on TV and Mike Pence, even Rand Paul, being asked by reporters, what are you going to cut? 
And they said, well, you know, invariably Boehner will say, well, spending's out of control. And then they said, yeah, but what are you gonna cut? Well, it's out of control. And uh, <laughs> something's gotta be cut. <laughs> but they never say what. And uh, Boehner actually was on Meet the Press the other day and, and got testy with the questioner saying, look, we're not gonna go into solutions here. So, okay. <laughs> you put it that way, we'll ask something else. Just as a simple example, take the Department of Education. Literally, get rid of it. I'm, I, you know, it was 30 years ago that Ronald Reagan was elected president on a platform of abolishing the Department of Education, Energy too, of course. But if you look at a chart of the spending of the Department of Education, it's up to $80 billion now, maybe more. And the chart goes like this, just straight up from the day in the late 70s it was created. Performance at the bottom of the chart is like this, flat. And so you're thinking, what are we doing this for? Never mind that there's not the word education mentioned in the Constitution, it's unconstitutional. But the fact is it doesn't do any good and it costs a lot of money. And the majority of paperwork done at the local level in education is for the federal government. It's insane. We need some politicians with courage to step up. I don't care whether they're Republicans or Democrats, but the opportunity is there because the American people are ready. And the Cato Institute is playing a major role in providing the intellectual ammunition for reducing the size and scope of the government. And we work with many other groups, and not least of which is the Heartland Institute here in Illinois and Chicago. Heartland is a fabulous think tank and uh, very effective, particularly with the state legislatures who are gonna play an increasingly important role in this revolution. And so I urge you to support Cato and the, and the Heartline Institute. The Republican Party is, by and large, not the Tea Party movement. And establishment Republicans will have to learn, possibly painfully, that the Tea Party movement is more intense than most voters. That's the conclusion of Cato Institute senior fellow Tucker Carlson. He spoke at a Chicago Cato Institute City Seminar in December. All sorts of interesting things flow from what just happened, the midterm elections. I just want to center on two of them. And the most immediate will be the effect on the Republican Party. The last election was obviously a repudiation of Obama's program. It was a correction, um, and these are you know, historically predictable as you know, but more than anything, it was a realignment of the Republican Party. And I know there are a lot of people here disappointed that the Republican Party represents, by default, free market views, but it does, that's the reality. And so it sort of matters. The last election was the beginning, not the end of, I think, a really a revolution within the ranks of the Republican Party that will pit the leadership of the party based in Washington, the people we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, against the people who elected them, the Tea Party, which you know, whatever characterization you've read in the press, maybe some of you are involved, I would say after spending almost a full year on the road with a lot of Tea Party people, it's fundamentally, in a very small L way, a libertarian movement. It's a movement whose goal is really simple. It's not a religious movement. It's not a movement against fluoride in the water, though I think, you know, we might want to re-examine that. It's a group of people really mad about federal spending and about the accumulation of centralized power that is a result of federal spending and the, the debt 
that is the byproduct of that. And that's the focus of it. And I think, to their great credit, the various Tea Party groups around the country, most of whom hate each other, and are leaderless and not very well organized, but have hewn to that one idea and have been effective as a result. Well, the problem with that is, that is a worldview that I think many in this room may share, I certainly do, but that is directly at odds with the worldview of the people who run, by and large, who run the Republican Party, with some noble exceptions. But by and large, Washington is, as you know, a Mediterranean city. It's a city of deal-making. It's a city, you know, you want this, I want that. Let's come to some compromise. Let's figure it out. That's not the worldview of the Tea Party at all. And so to some large extent, I would say the Tea Party is a reaction not just against Obama, but against the kind of creeping statism of the Republican Party. This may seem obvious. It was not obvious six, eight weeks ago. And it became obvious, of course, when the Delaware primary took place. And you had this, in political terms, this amazing event. You had this nine-term member of Congress, Congressman Castle, who had been the governor of the state. And Delaware, of course, is a small state. There are fewer than 900,000 people there, all of whom are related to one another. And literally, and when they reelect someone to Congress nine times, the one thing you can be certain of, he's going to get the nomination, his party's nomination for Senate. You, we just know that, right? And that's what we thought we knew. And about 10 days before the primary, it became clear to those paying attention that actually he faced a really serious challenge from this woman no one had ever heard of called Christine O'Donnell, now famous, but at the time totally unknown, not even from Delaware, from New Jersey, didn't have a job not known for her advocacy on behalf of like issues most people are super concerned about, most famous for her positioning against masturbation. The irony, of course, being if, you know, if you're against masturbation, you're going to hate the U.S. Senate, but she's running anyway. <laughs> and it became, no, no one told her that. She actually called me yesterday. I just brag for a second. Uh, Christina, I won't even get into it. Anyway, I kind of like Christina all, but a very unlikely candidate, let me just put it that way. And it became clear to Republicans in Washington, holy smokes, this chick could win. And, and then it became clear that she's going to win. So on the night of the primary, Karl Rove gets on Fox, the Fox News Channel, where I work. I think it's fair to say if you want to reach Republican primary voters on election day, going on Fox is mainlining, basically. It's right in the bloodstream. And Rove gets on and says, ladies and gentlemen, Republicans of Delaware, whatever you do, do not vote for Christine O'Donnell. A, she can't win. B, she's crazy. And the Republican primary voters of Delaware collectively raised a middle finger to Karl Rove and gave her the nomination. Now, what does this mean? If you think about it, this is a profound statement. It's not just, it's not just this sort of weird hiccup. It was a symptom of a larger transformation in progress. This was the moment when the Tea Party or the grassroots activists or the budding, without even knowing they are, but basically budding libertarian activists, said to the Republican Party, based in Washington, there is nothing we won't do to you if you don't bend to our will. We have no limits, right? If it comes down to it, we will nominate someone we know we'll lose, if only to prove a point. We're psycho. <laughs> and the truth is, there's no one more powerful than the crazy person. There's no one more powerful who, than the guy who will go all the way. It's to, if you've ever been sentenced to prison, this is great. I mean, if you ever, you know, you know you're going to prison and you have some sense that, you know, you're not going to thrive there. So you contact someone who's been to prison before and you ask the obvious question, you know, what do I do? You will invariably get the same advice, which is uh, the very first day you have to establish the fact that you are a man without boundaries. So you're, you're standing in line with your little tray waiting to get food. Someone cuts in front of you, you bite his ears off. And you will never be hassled in the shower. That is your prison chow line moment. And so for the Tea Party, the Delaware Republican nomination, that contest was the prison chow line moment. They're saying the Republican Party, oh, 
we'll lose a Senate seat for you. And that was the moment the Republicans had to pay attention. And they have ever since. So what are the ramifications of this? There are two, and they're, I think they are of consequence. One, a little more inside, baseball, the allocation of power within Washington, which is going on right now, within the Republican Party, they took the House, and their players in the Senate, is a lot more complicated. Because the people who run the Republican Party, as I said, don't have a lot in common with people who put them there. And so I think that the tenure of John Boehner is likely to be very short because I think it's untenable. I just don't think it works when the people who elected you sort of disapprove of your worldview. Over the near longer term, and in DC long term means like 20 minutes and beyond. But politically, the next event is the presidential election, which is currently underway. And what this means is total chaos on the Republican side, which by the way is without precedent in my lifetime. Republicans hate chaos. I don't know how much time you spend around them, but they're highly orderly, hierarchical people who respect authority. And which is why, you know, despite all the manufactured drama, every Republican nominating contest is exactly the same. You know, you've got, you've got the various candidates, you've got, you know, one hopes we'll have a libertarian candidate, but you always have a couple evangelical candidates, a Wall Street candidate, you know, Alan Keyes runs, I think that's the law. But in the end, no matter who's running or who gives the most compelling debate performances, you always know who's going to win, and that's the oldest guy, because that's what Republicans do. They nominate the guy whose turn it is. Not, I'm not criticizing that. And it's, of course, it's the mere opposite of the democratic process, which is completely wide open and insane, and anyone can show up, you know, just BYOB, and you know what I mean? It's like you can be some, you know, dwarf governor from Vermont and, like, make a pretty good play for it, or you can be some, you know, heretofore unknown state senator from this state and, like, get the nomination, whatever. But the Republican side is exactly the opposite. It's wired from day one, except this year. This, the ramifications, is, trust me, I cannot overstate this, how wild, maybe destructive, maybe constructive, unclear, but different this year is going to be. But in any other year, you would know really once we get all through it, Mitt Romney's going to be the nominee. You just sort of know. I mean, right, because, well, for one thing, he looks the part. He does. He looks like the result of some twisted genetic experiment designed to produce the perfect presidential candidate. You know, he's got that Easter Island-like head. You know, <laughs> and he's had you know a credible, in fact, an impressive business career running Bain, and and he ran before. He ran before. You know, he did it. And Republicans love it when you run and you lose. They love that. No, I'm serious. Democrats, again, exactly the opposite. You lose on the Democratic side, and it's over. You run for president, lose, you're immediately banished to, you know, Eastern Massachusetts State Technical College for nursing, or wherever Mike Dukakis went when he lost in 88. I mean, you're not allowed on a hardball ever. I mean, that's, and that's a low bar, trust me. But it's it. On the Republican side, you know, Barry Goldwater, fewer than 100 electoral votes in 64, leader of a movement. You know, they, they, they love that. So you would know that it's going to be Mitt Romney, except this year, newsflash, Mitt Romney will not be the Republican nominee. And by the way, many people in this room have been hit up by Mitt Romney, I know it. And uh, don't throw good money after bad, just <laughs> save it, because uh, he's not going to get it. Why do we know this? It's not for the reasons you imagine. It's not the reason he did, you know, last time, famously, his religion hurt him. I think the country, and this is, in my view, great news, has moved beyond that. I don't think that's a problem. The fact that he's a flip-flopper, you know, whatever. I mean, smart people flip-flop, right? The data change, and so do your opinions. Dumb people stay the course, trust me. You know, so we're all flip-floppers, maybe not to the degree Mitt Romney is, but we're all, no, no. The reason Mitt Romney's not gonna get the nomination is because of the Massachusetts health care plan, which 
you know, you may love it or you may hate it. It's immaterial. Republican primary voters see it as the prototype, the blueprint for Obamacare. And Mitt Romney was on record, including on my show, repeatedly bragging about it and the individual mandate. And that's death. That's like the, that's, you know, the Republican primary electorate hates Obamacare as the devil hates holy water. It's just, it's not acceptable. And so he cannot get over that hurdle. I'm completely convinced. So that raises the question, well, who's the nominee going to be? Now, I could bore you for hours with, you've heard the list of people who are running, starting with Governor Johnson. Virtually everybody's ever been a governor is running. I don't think I know anyone who's not. I think my kids are running. I mean, everybody is running for the Republican nomination because it's so wide open. I actually happen to know who the nominee is going to be. Is being taped, by the way? No, okay. And I'll tell you, since I happen to know. The Republican nominee is, and this is not the product of my desire, this is just, I think, a statement of fact. The Republican nominee is going to be a very unlikely person. It's going to be the governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie. It's going to be the nominee. <laughs> by the way, almost everything about that prediction in any other year would be ludicrous. Because Chris Christie does not, in very basic ways, conform to our understanding of what makes a successful Republican candidate. And for one thing, he's from New Jersey, so he's way more liberal on the social issues, likely, than your average Republican nominee. For another, you know, he's from New Jersey. You know, he doesn't have a, his voice sounds like a malfunctioning electric razor. You know, he's not exactly a soothing character. <laughs> he doesn't, unlike Mitt Romney, he doesn't look the part. He's a very heavy set man. And, you know, he could lose 100 pounds, but he's not gonna. And you can't make him. So why, and, and by the way, he's also said like about 15 times, I'd rather die than run for president. So why do I believe he's going to run for president and get the Republican nomination? Very simple. I travel a lot, almost full time. And wherever I go, from you know, Bangor to Santa Monica, I meet the same profile of person, usually sort of older, politically involved Republican, the kind of person who votes in the primaries. And invariably, they say the same thing. And we're sitting at dinner. I had this amazing experience. You know, my college roommate, usually they don't know much about technology. My college roommate, you know, sent me this link to something called YouTube or something. And it's a <laughs> video site. And I, I click on it. And the most amazing thing popped up. There was this fat man. I believe he's the governor of New Jersey. And he was screaming at the head of a public employees union. I think it was the head of the teachers union. Just spanking her. And he's got a bullwhip in one hand and a microwave burrito in the other. And he's just going to town. And they can't get enough of it. It's like Republican porn. They just refresh, refresh, refresh. <laughs> they love it. Now, why do they love that so much? I'll tell you, and I've thought a lot about this. And I'll be, look, let me flip it around. We, I think, handicap these things backwards. We think when we're assessing a field in politics, especially at the national level, the presidential level, we think, who's the most qualified? And that's almost never a useful way to think about it. I live in Northwest DC. On my street, there are like five people who ran for president who are all pretty qualified. And they're now out puttering around gardening on Wednesday morning. They're unemployed. Clearly, that's not the key criterion. The question is not who is qualified. The question is, what's the moment? Who fits the moment? Who is right for the time? Where are we as a country? What are we looking for right now? And there's no question in my mind that what we're looking for is someone to tell us not just the hard truths, which, by the way, the public is zero interest in hearing. We want someone to tell us the truth. No, you don't. You want someone to lie to us. Sort of nibble on our lobes as he does. This is the one moment in my lifetime, since I've been paying attention anyway, where I think there is a hunger for someone to tell us things we actually really don't want to hear. And those things, and I'm not even going to get into it because I think you, 
let me put it this way. There are a lot of people in this country who suspect, and I don't want to articulate this because it's too depressing, but who suspect that a historic change has taken place in America, and we really have crossed over some threshold into something else. And it's probably not good, and it's also really sad, and people don't really want to articulate it. They have a profound sense of melancholy when they think of how America's changed, and they think of America's future. It isn't like previous recessions, actually. This one feels like maybe it's the end of something important. And it makes people really, really sad. And it makes them sad primarily because they know they're responsible for it, because they know they did it. They know the reason the country's getting weaker is because we spent too much. And when I say we, I mean we. And the reason we're running out of money is not because of some mohair subsidy or some you know, stupid, wasteful program. That's, no, that's not the reason. People know the reason. The reason is entitlements. They know that middle-class entitlements, middle-class welfare, has bankrupted the country. When you tell people, you know, what are the five main expenditures of the federal government? Most people couldn't name them, but they know them instinctively. For whatever you know, I'll know this. Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, the Pentagon, interest on the debt. There's no dumb, like, oh, we're wasting money, you know, with the helium reserve. Spare me. No, no, no. It's programs that ordinary people benefit from and therefore support that are bankrupting the country. And the reason they're bankrupting us is because we support them, right? It's very easy to eliminate welfare for poor people because most people aren't poor. You're not going to meet anyone who's on welfare. You're going to meet a lot of people whose parents are kept alive by Medicare. So that's why it's a problem. But that doesn't make the problem any smaller. In fact, it makes it more intractable. And it requires somebody of extraordinary mental instability <laughs> to address that. I would say courage, but it's beyond that. It's beyond that. A brave person would assess, politically assess the requirement involved in telling the truth about entitlements and say, you know what, it's not kind of not worth it. I'm going to get into venture capital or something with a <laughs> higher chance of return. It really would take a kamikaze to look right into a television camera and say, you know what, the bankers didn't do this to us. The politicians didn't do this to us. You and I did this to ourselves because we're greedy and short-sighted. And here's what we need to do. We need to slash entitlements that we all like and benefit from. How's that? Well, my view is that the first nine politicians who do that are going to, in effect, be jumping face first on the barbed wire, hoping others run over their backs. Because it's instant death. And so I'm not claiming for a second that Chris Christie is going to ride that message to the White House. I don't know what's going to happen. And I, I've lost a lot of money in the many thousands over the past couple of years betting on elections. So I'm not going to go out on a limb and predict what the final outcome will be. But I, I strongly believe that that conversation people don't want to hear, and yet they yearn for it anyway. Because both sides are lying, and everyone knows it. The Democratic Party makes the case that, you know, the same case it's made for 80 years, that we just need to tax, tax rich people more. Well, look, I'm not defending rich people. I'd love to be one, but I'm not defending them. I'm merely noting the mathematically obvious, which is we don't have enough rich people to close the gap. Now, you could take the top 2% of earners and nationalize them. Them. I mean, literally, take the populations of you know, West Los Angeles, Jackson Hole, and Palm Beach, and just send them to an island in the South Pacific, steal all their stuff, sell it, and apply it to the national debt. Not enough. It's just not. The Republicans argue that, oh, you know, we just got to eliminate waste, fraud, and abuse. Well, that's a tough one. You know, the waste, fraud, and abuse lobby is going to be you know, fighting that. No, come on. <laughs> Domestic, discretionary, non-military spending is... Drop in the bucket. As you know, that's not enough. 
You have seen Republicans in the last election make what we call the cat food defense. I don't know if other people, that's what we call it in journalism. The cat food defense is what politicians in the, in the waning days of a campaign always pull out, and they're invariably Democrats. And it's always in desperation. The, the two final attacks are, my opponent is racist, he's gonna bring us back to the days of Bull Connor and fire hoses, and my opponent hates entitlements, and as a result, if elected, your grandmother will be eating cat food. <laughs> Probably on a fifth floor walk up in a crummy part of town with no hot water because that's what any attempt to rein in entitlement spending will result in, invariably. And I have always thought, in my 20 years of watching this, that was a particularly repulsive and unfair, and by the way, stupid line of attack. I wouldn't even dignify it by calling it reasoning. You watch Republicans make that exact same argument against the president's health care bill. Rather than making the obvious point that is, we can't afford this, and by the way, is the government really the most efficient body to organize something as complex as American medicine? The obvious critique, no. Can I hear an amen? amen? Instead, argued that the real problem with Obamacare, it cuts Medicare too much. And grandma's gonna be eating cat food. So when both parties start making the same argument, it really is the final scene in Animal Farm when the dumb animals are looking in the windows and the people and the pigs are playing poker and you can't tell one from the other. I don't mean to sound like Ralph Nader, the parties are not the same, they're not. They're not the Republican Party. There are significant, important, real differences between the two parties. But on this question, there aren't. There aren't real differences. And it's going, but the beauty is that the grassroots, the engine that drives one party, the Republican Party, is increasingly waking up to the fact that something needs to change or else we're going to be looking at a debt that's 100% of GDP. You're Greece at that point, except we're not in an EU. No one's going to bail us out. It's really, really scary. And the only way to fix that is by taking on entitlements. And so Chris Christie is the man. Under the Constitution, individuals have always had the right to enter freely into contracts with one another. Over the years, this right has been diminished by court decisions and a growing regulatory state. In a new book from the Cato Institute, author David Mayer explores this lost right and where the court did and did not go wrong. To learn more or to purchase your copy of The Liberty of Contract, visit cato.org slash store. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.